You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, if you have Bibles, um, go ahead and make your way to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, it's page 1021 in the hardcover Bibles Elise mentioned a little while ago. Uh, about a decade ago, the word basic became a derogatory term. Uh, if you're under 35, that's probably not news to you. You're probably already familiar. You might already know that. For anyone else, just consider this a public service announcement. We're just doing our part here at Liberty Church, trying to help you stay informed. You know, it's like one of those, the more you know commercials. It's one of those. But if a younger person were to call you basic, it's most likely an insult. It's most likely an insult. Basic has come to mean bland, uh, mainstream, unoriginal, unexceptional. One source uh, defines a basic person as, quote, someone devoid of defining characteristics that might make a person interesting or simply worth devoting time or attention to. Uh, that's a significant statement and a significant change in meaning, if you think about it. It's a significant change in meaning. Before it became an insult, basic meant foundational. Uh, the sturdy, solid base of something. So something basic was perhaps plain, but it was essential. Uh, Let's get back to basics was a call to get rid of all of the excessive trappings and to return to, to fundamental things. And in that sense, few things in the Christian life are as basic as love. If you're a Christian, it probably did not take you a long time of being a Christian to learn that love is a really essential part of following Jesus. That the Christian faith is all about God's love for you, and it's all about your love for God, and it's all about our love for, for each other. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you're thinking about what Christianity means, and if you want to maybe someday choose to follow Jesus, that, this is probably on your radar too. This is probably not a brand new concept, that Christianity has something to do with love. No New Testament writer is more emphatic about love than the Apostle John. John is described uh, in the Gospels as the one whom Jesus loved. John often addresses his readers, and we'll even hear that today, as beloved. And as we're going to see throughout this series, love is one of the themes that John, re- John returns to over and over again in his letters. For, love, for John, love is basic. It's basic. It's an essential, non-negotiable. And that's because, as we're going to read in just a moment, love is an old commandment. It has been the essence of living as the people of God from the beginning. But this basic command to love is anything but bland, anything but unexceptional. This old commandment is also a new commandment, one which proclaims the work of Jesus, one which proclaims and displays the true story of the world. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 
Verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, by remaining faithful to death, you show us the road to greater love. By opening paradise to the repentant thief, you awaken hope in us. Come this morning by the power of your spirit and help our weak faith. Come and create a pure heart in us. Renew and strengthen our spirit. Lord Jesus, your word is near. Your spirit is near. May it live within us and lead us always. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, This morning, let's look at two key things. Uh, Let's talk about perceiving the new commandment. Try to understand what it is and, and what actually is new about it. And then let's talk about practicing the new commandment. What does it actually look like to live this out in our daily lives? So perceiving and practicing the new commandment. First, let's talk about perceiving the new commandment. It's not 100% sure, but most scholars are fairly certain that John's gospel, his account of Jesus' life and ministry, was written before his letters, like this one. And at times, as we read his letters, it seems like John is counting on us or on his readers to be familiar with Jesus' words that were recorded earlier in the Gospels. So in that Gospel, in John chapter 13, in the upper room, after he washes his disciples' feet, Jesus says, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. So now here in 1 John, the apostle is picking up on that idea. When he writes about the old and the new commandment, he's talking about love, and specifically love for one another, love among fellow Christians or brothers or brothers and sisters in Christ. But maybe you heard this as we read it a little while ago. Verses 7 and 8 feel like a contradiction. Verse 7, I am writing no new commandment, but an old one. Verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment. So let's try to understand that. Let's try to perceive what is old about this command and then what is new. Because on the one hand, as John writes here, it's not a new commandment at all. It's old. Love is at the absolute center of all of the Old Testament commandments and laws. Jesus, a couple different times in his earthly ministry, says that the summary of all of those laws, the summary of all of it, the law and the prophets depend upon love. And whenever Jesus summarizes it, he always quotes two very specific Old Testament commands. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then Leviticus 19.18, which says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So these commands to love God and to love neighbor have been around a really long time. They are not new. They are old. And on top of that, John is saying here, this is a command that you had from the beginning. Not in the the Genesis 1 in the beginning sense, but the beginning of their time as Christians. He's saying to his readers, you've always known this from the day that you began to follow Jesus. Love is not a matter of secondary importance that after you follow Jesus for like a decade, then someone says, hey, you know what we should talk about? You should actually be loving God and loving other people. 
as these men and women were hearing the good news about Jesus, they heard very quickly, probably even in the same breath, this command to love God and neighbor. John is not shocking them here with something that they've never heard before. And so that's what it means that this command is old. It's not novel. It's not flashy. It's basic. It's foundational. The very same time then, verse 8, John says, but it also is a new commandment. How so? How is this new commandment new? Well, it's new in at least three ways. It's new in its example. It's new in its empowerment. And it's new in its effectiveness. So for one, there's a new example. John says, this new commandment is true in him, meaning Jesus. That is, the truth of this love, the perfection and the completeness of love is most clearly seen in the example of Jesus Christ. It's seen in the example of the way he lived his life. It's seen in the example of his substitutionary death in our place. As Jesus said in in John's gospel recorded earlier, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And then he continues, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's a new example, is it not? That's a new example of love. We did not have that example before Jesus. And it is a revolutionary example. That's why John can say it's new. We, we know the depths of God's love for us in a brand new way, in a new depth, because of Jesus' death for us in our place. Jesus goes on to say in John's gospel in John 15, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Paul, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us. How, how do we see God's love? How does God show us his love? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus' love is our salvation. It is what we depend upon to rescue us from our sin, but it is also our example of what real love looks like. Jesus has said to his disciples from the beginning of their time as disciples, as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. So there's a new example. There's also new empowerment. New empowerment to actually keep this command. John writes not only that this is true in him, but it's true in you. The the Christian men and women who are reading, who are hearing this letter, it's not just going to be seen in Jesus, it's going to be seen in his people. Jesus actually in that passage back in John 13 continued by saying, this is how all people will know that you are my disciples. What's the, what's the ultimate evidence that we belong to Jesus? It's our love for one another. So Jesus doesn't just give us an example to follow. He actually empowers us to do that. He sends his spirit to empower our obedience. When we put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence within us. And we are empowered to love in a way that we never would be able to if we were left to ourselves. If it were only up to to myself, to my own efforts and my own strength. And speaking of things that are new, the prophet Jeremiah centuries before anticipated this day when God would make a new covenant with his people. And in that new covenant, God promised he would write his law. He would take his commandments, which are old, which have been around a long time, and he would write them on the hearts of his people. He said, we won't have to teach each other all the time. We won't have to have have more and more commandments spelled out for us because we will know God in our hearts. We will want to walk in his ways. One author 
said it this way, when the law realizes itself in a person's heart as love for God and neighbor, it ceases to bear the aspect of a command. The law becomes a principle, a motive, a joyous harmony of the human will with the will of God. I think that's an incredible phrase. The law is not just a commandment anymore. It becomes a joyous harmony of the human will, of our will, with the will of God. And God has inaugurated this new covenant in Jesus. He has sent the Spirit into our hearts to write those commands on our hearts. And so this new commandment is true not only in Jesus, but in in you, Christian. You have a new empowerment to love. And then third, there's also new effectiveness, new effectiveness. Look there again at the second half of verse eight. John says, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Jesus said of himself in John chapter eight, one of the many famous I am statements that John recorded in his gospel. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so John has been writing from his earliest writings about this. He's been saying that Jesus came to bring light into the darkness. What darkness is he talking about? He's talking about the darkness of sin and all of its corrupting and polluting effects. He's talking about the darkness of ignoring or suppressing or rejecting God. On the cross, a decisive victory was won over the darkness. And so we get to gather each and every time we gather, we get to live each moment of our lives knowing that the end of this story is not up in the air. Jesus Christ wins. God reconciles the world to himself. Jesus makes all things new. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. Amen? That is already all happening because of Jesus. And yet, as we all know all too well, Darkness persists. It is passing away, but it is not gone yet. What John is saying here is that in Jesus, love pushes back the darkness. It's not just that the darkness someday in the future will pass away. It is passing away right now. There is new effectiveness. Love for God, God's love for us, our love for each other is dealing crushing blows to the darkness that remains in our world. See, this commandment to love, though basic, though old, is anything but bland or boring. Our keeping the new commandment, our love for one another as Jesus has loved us, is not only evidence that Jesus wins, it's part of his triumph. It's part of his triumph. It is one more inch of ground, ground that was once covered in darkness, now claimed by the true light of the world. When, when earthquakes kill and displace tens of thousands of people, when disease, physical, mental, or otherwise, ravages, when anxiety and depression cripple, when it seems like the darkness is winning, our simple, faithful acts of love proclaim to the world, no, the darkness is almost dead. The darkness is almost dead. The true light is already shining we know how the story ends and it's that Jesus wins. Because obedience to this new commandment has that kind of potential, which I think is incredible potential. Let's now seek to understand what more of that love looks like in practice. If that was perceiving the new commandment, let's talk second about practicing 
the new commandment. Verse 9 here, 1 John chapter 2, John includes the three of these whoever says statements. Uh, He's writing this letter to Christians. He's writing to give them confidence and assurance that they really know God and are known by God. As he's doing that, he's also needing to counter errors from counterfeit, from heretical groups that are, that are drawing people away from the church, that are drawing people away from following Jesus. And so there are some people making these claims, and John is going through them one by one and saying, hey, if a person says this but acts this way, they're not the real deal. They're not the authentic follower of Christ. Here, some people are claiming to be in the light. They're claiming to have a, a special knowledge about God. And yet, in their lives, in their actual lives, they're hating their brother. They're hating their fellow God seeker. And John is saying, that's not possible. If you hate your brother, you are still in the darkness. In other words, he's saying, it doesn't matter what kind of special knowledge you think you have. If your quote unquote knowledge translates to hatred in your actual life instead of love, it's darkness. You're actually more characterized by the sin which corrupts the world than the light which shines in it. Now, some forms of hatred are fairly obvious. Spiteful words and language said or yelled at one another. Various forms of abuse. Murder. An utter disdain for another human being. And John, of course, would include these forms of hatred when he talks about hating your brother. The hard truth, though, is that hatred includes a lot more than that. If opponents of Jesus' church are drawing Christians away, then that would be because there actually is something deceitful about this. There's something deceitful about this. Hatred must be a trap that Christians can fall into, or John wouldn't have to write the way he's writing here. And so beyond maybe those more obvious forms of hatred, what might hate for a brother or sister look like? And as we talk about a couple of these, more importantly, let's also identify the opposite. What would practicing the new commandment to love look like instead of hating our brother and sister? No claim to to be an exhaustive list, but three of the more subtle forms of hatred that I think are deceitful, that we can experience in our relationships among Christians would be tolerance, negligence, and malevolence. Tolerance, negligence, malevolence. By tolerance, I mean just putting up with someone. Their life, their choices, uh, the way that they interact with you or people you love might drive you crazy. And so you resolve at some point just to put up with it. The problem is, if you're honest, if I'm honest, we don't ever really just put up with it, do we? we very quickly, whether consciously or subconsciously, build resentment and bitterness. In our society, tolerance is actually a virtue, considered a virtue. And it doesn't, in our society's definition, simply mean putting up with someone. It actually means affirming everything, every single thing that that someone else would want you to affirm about their life. In our society, in other words, tolerance is equated with love. Tolerance is love. I would suggest this morning that scripture says the exact opposite of that. That for brothers and sisters in Christ, tolerance is actually the threshold of hatred. 
Christians are supposed to sharpen each other. Christians are supposed to be ones who offer the faithful wounds of a friend. Christians are supposed to speak grace and truth into one another's lives. Tolerance means you've become indifferent. Tolerance means you've become apathetic. It means you've turned a part of your heart off toward that person. You've become calloused in some way toward another. And so instead of tolerance, practicing this new commandment to love would look like, among other things, curiosity. Curiosity. Seeking to understand another person. Curiosity seeks, uh, curiosity keeps your heart soft instead of calloused. Curiosity actually keeps a place open in your heart for another person, even if, even as you disagree about significant things. The fact that you're willing to explore that with them, the fact that you're willing to ask them questions about that means that your heart is still open to them. You're not just tolerating them. So tolerance is one. Another subtle form of hatred is negligence. Negligence. Some of you maybe are attorneys in the room. I think we at least have a couple in our church family. In legal terms, negligence is when someone is injured or harmed or damaged because of another's failure to use reasonable care. Reasonable care. So relationally, negligence would be a failure to offer reasonable care to a brother or sister in Christ. And I really appreciate this concept of of reasonable care because some people have unreasonable expectations. Uh, Some people have unreasonable demands. If we're honest, some of us have unreasonable expectations. And we would say, well, you're only loving me if you do all of these things for me. You're only loving me if I'm experiencing you this way. Some of us have unreasonable demands and expectations. So love for another person does have boundaries. It's reasonable care. What I would suggest to you this morning, though, is that the line between healthy boundaries and negligence is very often a really thin one. We will always want to define reasonable care through our own selfish lenses. Jesus says, as he's our new example in this new commandment, he says, love one another as I have loved you. That is a really costly love, is it not? That is an incredibly sacrificial, selfless kind of love. And so if we draw our boundaries by saying, you know what, anything costly, anything sacrificial, anything hard and difficult is too much, that's not a healthy boundary, that's negligence. And instead of negligence, practicing love, practicing this new commandment to love one another would look like presence and pursuit. Presence and pursuit. It means showing up for another person, even when it's hard, even when it's costly. And it means pursuing them, not not waiting for them to always ask something from you and then react to it. Not always waiting for them to demand something from you or when they're in those moments of crisis and then being ready to respond, but proactively thinking about and praying for and checking in with someone else. So there's tolerance, there's negligence, And then the the last one we'll look at this morning is malevolence. Malevolence. In other words, wishing ill toward another person. You might not say hateful things. You might not do hateful acts or act in hateful ways. But in your heart, in your mind, you are thinking hateful thoughts. And if we're honest, there are probably at least one or two people in your life right now who when they pop into your mind, whatever prompts that, 
Someone's, they mention, someone else mentions their name. You see their name or their feed pop up on a social media platform. You come across them somewhere where you weren't expecting to see them. And when you, when they come to your mind, it elicits malevolent thoughts. You're angry with them. You might've been really hurt by them. And so you find yourself in your kind of daydreams, wishing ill for them. You find yourself hoping that they learn their lesson, that that some kind of hardship comes their way to be some kind of payback, some kind of retribution. It's kind of like the mental equivalent of a voodoo doll. Not that any of us maybe have a lot of experience with voodoo dolls. If you do, I really would love to hear your story. I'm sure it's fascinating, but like the mental equivalent of that, where you're just in your mind, you're putting all these kind of pins into a person and hoping it hurts them in some way. Instead of malevolence, practicing this new commandment to love means being at peace with each other. There are times when things are broken to the extent that, that a full kinds of, kind of relational reconciliation is just not possible. That happens. Sin does that, and it does that among brothers and sisters in Christ. But when any brother or sister in Christ comes to mind, our true and deep desire for them should be that, that they would experience all of the fullness of God's blessing on their life. We should be able to, in any given moment, for any other brother and sister in Christ, they come to mind and think, you know what? I really hope that God is meeting them where they're at. I really hope God is blessing their life. I really hope God is being kind and gracious to them the way I need God to be kind and gracious to me. We're always meant to be able to rejoice with people who are rejoicing and to weep with people who are weeping. And so if in our minds that's gotten flipped around and we're rejoicing when someone else is weeping, or we're weeping when someone else is rejoicing, that's not being at peace with someone. That's, that's malevolence. That's, again, the threshold of, of hatred instead of love. You see how deceitful hatred can be? You see that this morning? And how easy it is to stumble over these subtle forms of hatred? You can, for example, be a fixture in your small group, in your Bible study group, but merely tolerate the people in it. And by, by making really quick judgment calls about where the people are coming from, Rather than being curious, you can, you can have a calloused, hard heart toward them and subtly begin to hate people that you're in that community with. You can give sacrificially. You could be the biggest donor to every drive, to every campaign that we do here. You could meet all of the Amazon list that Anthony mentioned a little while ago for Easter Outreach. But you could keep people at arm's length. You could fail to actually give them the reasonable care of presence and pursuit. And by that negligence, begin to hate your brother or sister. And you can show up and shake people's hands and have a smile always on your face whenever we gather as a church, but you can be harboring malevolence. It's always a good gut check when we do passing the peace each and every Sunday to ask yourself, am I really at peace or am I pursuing peace with the people I'm in community with or am I wishing ill for them? Am I harboring some kind of malevolence? And you can be a pastor who proclaims the beauty, who proclaims the excellencies of the God who is love, but subtly be, begin to hate people that you're proclaiming it to. It, it's embarrassing to me how much these subtle forms of hatred continue to exist and surface in my heart. And for me, if not daily, it is at least a multiple times a week battle against tolerance, against negligence, against malevolence. What I would say to you this morning is what I preach to myself in my own heart. The greatest danger 
for me, the greatest danger for you is not that you still experience forms of hatred. It's that you will pretend you don't. That's why John has this progression here in the last verse that we read in verse 11. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, but also walks in darkness, continues to to progress in that darkness. And then eventually, John says, the darkness blinds his eyes. I recently watched a a miniseries, a Western uh, miniseries, and it was focused on an old mining town in New Mexico. Uh, Mining horses or pit ponies, as they're sometimes called. Uh, They were the horses that were kept underground to haul the dirt, uh, to haul the ore. And they became so used to the darkness because they lived there all the time that eventually they went blind. That's the danger of not realizing and repenting of the hatred that we find in our hearts. That we're going to keep walking in it. That we'll eventually become blind to it. That the darkness actually begins to become normal to us. David Jackman said it this way, the conscience that is habitually silenced soon ceases to speak. And maybe from John's vantage point, we could tweak that a little bit and say, the eye that is habitually closed to his brother or sister soon ceases to see. So if you feel conviction today, uh, if you recognize in your own heart tolerance or negligence or malevolence or any other form of hatred, In a kind of counterintuitive way, let me say, praise God. Praise God. It means you are not blind. It means your conscience has not ceased to speak. Friends, in Jesus Christ, the darkness is passing away. Our love for one another is part of his triumph. It is proclaiming to the world that the darkness is almost dead. But never forget that the true light which pushes back what is dark in this world also pushes back what is dark in you and me. As we read last week, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He has dealt with your sins, including your hatred. You are called, you are now empowered by the Spirit to love your brother, to abide in the light. But when you sin instead, when you hate instead, you have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ the righteous. When you confess your sin, including your hatred, God is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so there might be a person, there might be a few people that you need to connect with this week. You might have some some hatred to repent of and some love to pursue. By all means, do that. Do that. As you do, do it with the assurance that Jesus' love for you is forever sufficient to cover over your lack of love for another. Church, because in Jesus Christ, we have a new example, new empowerment, and new effectiveness. Let us put to death the hate that remains in us. Instead of tolerance, let's be curious. Instead of negligence, let's be present and pursue. Instead of malevolence, let's be at peace. And until the darkness passes away, may our love for one another daily claim more ground for the true light of the world, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God of mercy, you are full of tenderness and compassion. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in love. And greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus, we are saved by your love. And your love is now our example. We are to love one another the way that you have loved us. So we come this morning confessing the ways we've fallen short of that. We come this morning confessing our hatred in its overt or subtle forms. 
We ask that as we come, as we prepare to come to your table this morning, we would come recognizing that that is what you came into the world to save us from. That we would fight the temptation to try to clean up our lives by our own strength and then come to you as a loving person. But we would come to you with the hatred we still find in ourselves, laying it before your feet at the cross, receiving forgiveness, and being cleansed to go and live a new life of love. Would you meet us this morning by the power of your spirit? Would you come now reminding us of your love for us and calling us to live in love for one another? And we pray all of that through your finished work and for your glory and in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.